these projects are starting up and and I agree that this sounds crazy. Like I get it. It's also kind of like weird when you bring it up in, you know, with your real world friends because like they might not be so deep into this. They think you're kind of a nut job. Yeah. But people thought it was crazy that one day we're going to, you know, buy things on the internet. You know, in 1995, people thought that the internet was a fluke. So these yep. things in the beginning always sound a little bit crazy, but watch the data, right? This is where crazy ideas stop being crazy and it's just the beginning of a trend, right? Just the beginning of a, of a new version of doing things. Hello and welcome to the Lewis and Kyle Show, an interview podcast that my friend Lewis and I started in the middle of the pandemic and 18 months later, we've published 82 episodes. It's uh, uh, an interview yeah. podcast where we talk to uh, entrepreneurs, investors, and people living really high leverage lives in a bunch of different industries, from crypto to real estate to copywriting. Really, we've done it all uh, in terms of interviewing people that have actually done it. Uh, and, and sharing the lessons that we learned from them with you has been some, uh, something that has been awesome. And today we have another great episode for you. Lewis, tell us a little about it. Yeah, today we interview Mitko. Uh, his name's spelled out in the description. I'm not going to try it because I'm going to screw it up. <laughs> but Mitko is a digital nomad based in Bulgaria at the moment. So he did this podcast from Bulgaria. How fun is that? He has a series of online businesses, uh, lots of e-commerce. He's done some copywriting. He's worked with some agencies. Uh, right now, his big priority is promoting his online school, Parable, uh, when the word parable kind of means story, which is exactly what his online business school does. It teaches through the case study method used to actual MBA programs, but in the context of online business. He also has a podcast that he's been doing long before COVID started. So he's got us beat in that respect called That Remote Life, which is all about location independent entrepreneurs, how they make their money, why they're location independent, etc. It's very good. I would check it out. This podcast discusses how all of those things came to be, the lessons from doing all those things, the ideas that are useful from all of those things. And I think you're going to learn a lot about online business, remote life, and online communities was another big topic we covered. I'm excited for you to listen to this podcast, as excited as I've been for all other 80 or so episodes. I'm going to switch over to it now. Enjoy. Mikko, welcome to the podcast. I'm excited to chat today. Yeah, I'm stoked. Thanks for having me here, guys. Absolutely. So, you know, you're a digital nomad. That's a big part of your brand. So we'll start out with the must ask question. Where are you right now? Why are you there? How long have you been there? How long are you staying? Let's just start with the fun stuff. Yeah. So at the moment I'm in Varna, Bulgaria, which is, uh, if people are listening and don't know where Bulgaria is, it's essentially like right above Greece. Um, and the reason why I'm here is because like we talked before we hit record is that, um, well, first of all, uh, I was born here and then I immigrated to the United States when I was very young. Uh, and when I became a digital nomad, I was like, started hearing about all of these places that you've likely heard about that are really great nomad spots. You know, you hear about the Thailands, the, you know, uh, Indonesia's, Colombia's, et cetera, et cetera. And I was like, wow, a lot of these places have a lot of similarities with Bulgaria. And so I came here, I tested the nomad life, so to say here and loved it you know it's uh there's very fast internet here uh, there's been really fast internet here for like years and years um so that's really nice uh here in varna particularly there's a very nice beach so like literally two streets away from where i'm at at this co-working space at the moment there's a very beautiful beach with like beach bars and restaurants and whatnot uh and it's very very affordable so it's like this rare spot in Europe where I can fly to just about any European location in like two-ish hours maximum. Uh, and yet I'm living off of like Thailand prices here. So it's, it's really a great place to be in the summers. Is that, that's incredible. Do you need to be a European, are you a European citizen? Like do you have, can Americans go to check out the spot? Yes. Yeah, so I am, I have dual citizenship with the United States and Bulgaria. Um, which I'm very fortunate to have. Uh, it kind of gives me, you know, kind of a head start in, in terms of the nomading stuff. But uh, Americans don't need a visa or anything like that to come here. Uh, but it is. So the nice thing, the other nice thing about Bulgaria for specifically U.S. citizens, I don't know how this works for uh, other people with other citizenships, but Bulgaria is outside of what's called the Schengen zone of Europe. So if you think about like 
the quote-unquote cool European countries, you know, the Spains, Frances, Germany's, these countries, they're inside of a zone inside of the European Union called the Schengen Zone. And the Schengen Zone is important because as an American citizen, it's what dictates your visa-free travel, right? So you can spend up to three months in a 180-day period inside of the Schengen Zone, and it's the same rule for outside of the Schengen Zone. So what that means is that if you played your cards right, you could spend year-round in Europe without ever needing um, a visa just by jumping from Schengen to non-Schengen. So you can do three months inside of Schengen, three months outside, then back in because the 180 days runs out. So a lot of people like Bulgaria for that reason because it essentially extends the amount of time they can be in Europe by kind of hopping in and out of the Schengen. Um, but my question, I guess you answered it, was is Bulgaria in the European Union, which I'm assuming that it is now? Yes. So it's inside of the European Union, but not inside of the Schengen. The Schengen. Kyle, you're a bit okay. quiet. There. Well, let's start with. Okay, uh, I think either just talk louder or get closer, but. Yeah. All good. My bad. Um, well, let's start with you becoming a digital nomad. So I guess like what was the initial realization that you came to that led you down this path of becoming uh, what you are now as a digital nomad? So, I mean, it depends on like how long of, you know, amount of time we have to chat, you know, in some ways being born in Bulgaria and living here for 10 years and then moving to the United States gave me a little bit of a base. You know what I mean? Because I already knew kind of how big the world was. I had experienced living in other countries. So I, I already had a little bit of like a head start in that sense. And I also, even though I feel very at home in the United States and very at home here in Bulgaria, I didn't quite fit in either place, right? Like in America, everybody knew me as the Bulgarian kid. And then I would come back to Bulgaria and I would be the American kid. So nowhere was I just like a kid, right? And so even growing up, I always kind of felt like I really wanted to see the world. And I was very curious about what else was going on outside of my little bubble, you know? Um, and then I went to school, decided that wasn't for me, uh, dropped out, and I got um, involved in the startup scene in Cincinnati where uh, I lived in the U.S. And just through that experience, I was working with a lot of like online businesses and the startup space and you know all that kind of stuff. And I just happened to find this term digital nomad, right? And that just opened the Pandora's box because it was this thing that I always wanted to do, but I didn't know what it was. Do you know what I mean? Like I didn't have a term for it. Uh, I knew that I wanted to have some sort of control over my time, over my financials, you know, like have that financial freedom that we all kind of aspire to have and time freedom and be able to travel. That was always something that I wanted to do, but I didn't know what to call it. And then when I stumbled across the term digital nomad, which I think I heard on a podcast or something, I'm not even sure. Uh, now it's been years, obviously, but uh, I was like, oh my God, this is it. You know what I mean? You type in digital nomad into Google and it's Pandora's box. Like everything opens up, you start seeing this world. And, and when you see that that's a possibility, you kind of just point yourself in that direction, right? So um, yeah, I think 2015, 16, I heard about digital nomadism for the first time. And then by 2017, I remember January, 2017, uh, I was fully location dependent and, and took off bought my first one-way ticket. What was your first remote income source? Great question. So, uh, so I got interested in e-commerce cause I already had some background in it. And so the most sort of digital nomad friendly e-commerce business model at the time, and it still is pretty popular, but nowhere as popular as it was before is, uh, drop shipping, uh, which for, if people aren't familiar with that, it's essentially you do the marketing of a product and then the product is housed in another warehouse. You just, you know, you get orders and you send the orders off to, uh, um, a distributor. And so I got involved with that and I started, I, I took a few courses to learn how to do it. And one of the courses had um, like a mentorship package where you could work with a coach. And the coach was somebody who had had a lot of success with drop shipping and had also 
gone on to start a very successful uh, FBA brand, which is uh, for sale by Amazon. So it's an e-commerce business fully based on Amazon. And what I did was that I used whatever number, I think it was like five or six coaching calls. I used them all with that guy with the idea of, hey, this guy's like way ahead of me. Let me kind of build a relationship with him and see if there's something that we can do together, right? And so I did that. We got along really well. He liked me. I liked him. And he was like, hey, while you're building your own store, why don't you come work for our FBA business? And so that's essentially what I did was that while I was working on my own brand, which, you know, eventually didn't work out because the majority of businesses don't work out. I started running there essentially like marketing and content uh, I don't know. I, I was going to say team, but it was like a team of me and I think like a few freelancers. So, uh, I went to do that and that was essentially like my first, uh, salary. And it was incredible because now looking back at it, not only was it location independent, it was time independent as well. Right? So they didn't care how much time I was spending working on. They were like, Hey, here are the results that we want. I don't care if you spend five hours or 50 hours, whatever the, you know, it takes to get the results done. And so, uh, you know, if you're efficient and you know what you're doing and you're scrappy, you can get your work done pretty quickly. And so it was, it was an incredible, uh, you know, start. I think there's a couple lessons there, right? One is you're just one thinking strategically about the resources offered to you, taking advantage and like, you know, not in a exploitative way, just taking advantage and using what's available to you. And then, uh, focusing on relationships and everything like that. And then, you know, just working for someone else, even when your own project didn't work out. So how long did you stay with them? Did you start launching your own projects on the side? Did you like do a hard stop to launch your own projects? Like what was kind of like the next step? Cause you've been in the game a long time and I, I don't think you're still working for that guy. You might still be friends. I don't know, but yeah, no, <laughs> yeah, we're, we're still friends, but, um, we worked together for, I think about a year and then they ended up selling that FBA brand. So, you know, they had, that was always the plan for them was to have a, you know, a big exit. And so I kind of knew that there was a ticking clock, you know, with how long I had that gig. Um, and what I did after that actually, and it sounds so much simpler or easier or straightforward, you know, retelling the story, but you know, when you're going through Absolutely. it, it doesn't seem so straightforward. Um, what I did afterwards was that I was, I had a really hard time finding clients. I essentially took the skills that I built, you know, running this content and marketing for this brand. And I wanted to start freelancing it, but I had a really, really hard time finding clients. Like I don't consider myself a good salesperson, even though now I realize that I am, but I didn't think that I was. Um, but I, I just had the hardest time getting clients. And my idea was, okay, since I can't figure out how to get clients myself, let me go and find people and work for people who can get clients. So what that meant was that I built relationships with agencies and I would essentially kind of be this like point person for a few different agencies, um, doing a few different things, right? These were agencies that were growing. They didn't have enough revenue to essentially hire like a specific person for every single position. And I could do a good enough job at a few things that I could like fill a few slots for them. You know, like I could do content marketing, I could do web development, I could do a few of these different things, I could do ads, so on and so forth. And so I started working for a few different agencies this way, uh, which is funny because I was essentially getting clients, right? <laughs> Even though I wasn't looking at it that way, the agencies were my clients and I had no problem closing those. Um, and so that is essentially what I did after that business was sold. I just started working with agencies and was kind of filling the gaps for the talent that they couldn't find or couldn't afford to hire full time. So at what point in this process do you start your own content, your own writing, your own podcasting, your own YouTube? Cause I know that's been a big piece of everything you've done as well. Yeah. So eventually what happened was that I built a really good relationship with one of those agencies, um, and kind of became the right hand of the CEO. And I started working basically full time for him, um, with a few small side gigs and he kind of gave me the keys to the company, which was an incredible experience because for about three years I ran this company, right? Like I got to see it all the way from the very beginning of just like, you know, two, three freelancers on Upwork all the way to, by the time that I left, I think we had 25 employees or something like that. 
um, huge growth in revenue and we had just done, you know, productize the service, all this kind of stuff. And towards the end of that was 2019 was when I started doing a podcast because it's, first of all, I am so interested in what's happening in this space. And for me, the domino effect of like, when you internalize this idea that remote is the future, which, you know, post COVID is like a duh kind of thing. But before COVID, you know, I'll tell people about remote. They're like, yeah, yeah, it's just a fad. But once you start working remotely and once you see the benefits, both for you as a worker, uh, and you know, you as an entrepreneur, as a business, if, if, if that's who you are listening, the benefits are huge, right? So there's no going back once you go remote, once you go completely distributed. Uh, and so for me, it was like, okay, let's look at the domino effect of this. Like what happens if this happens, right? And following that trajectory, I, I feel like it leads us to a really interesting place. And I'm never one to sit on the sidelines. Like I want to be involved in this, in this. Like I want to talk to people. I want to understand what's happening. I want to have a part in it to play. And so uh, I started podcasting. I started a podcast called That Remote Life to essentially document all of these exciting things that are happening in this industry uh, and to also meet these super, super interesting people that are making a lot of this stuff happen. Uh, and so, yeah, I started interviewing people uh, in 2019. We have over 120 episodes now. Um, a, a bunch of them are on YouTube. And so, yeah, it's been a really fun time. And I've, and I've learned a ton of, as I'm sure you guys have from running this podcast. Yeah, it's been, you know, an incredibly intrinsically valuable experience for Lewis and I. And uh, one thing that he said early on is like, it'll take us many years to internalize the um, the benefits that have come from this podcast, just in terms of our own development. But, you know, I agree. And, and that's one of my questions is like, how vindicated did you feel when COVID happened and the entire world went remote? Like you're, you're setting yourself up to be this influencer in 2019 and then, you know, 2020 happens and you can't look at any sort of publication yeah, well, without seeing the word remote. <laughs> it was a, it was a mixed feeling. Cause you know, it's like it shit hit the fan. Right. So there were a lot bigger problems to worry about at the time than me being like, told you so, right? Like that wouldn't have been very, uh, tasteful of me, but yeah, I right. mean, it was, it was, there was a part of me that was kind of like excited and I saw like, I was like, Oh, everyone is going to get this now. Right. Uh, so there was, uh, one side of it was that the other side of it was mm. like, okay, great. Well, I'm happy about this, but at the same time, there's this, you know, uh, COVID is really affecting a lot of people and a lot of families and, and, you know, were hurt and all that kind of stuff. And then on the third thing, I essentially had a whole bunch of people calling me up because they had to figure out how to work remotely. Right. And so there was this, like, I was kind of juggling those three balls, so to say. Um, but yeah, it's been, you know, I think in the long term, you know, it's going to be the fact that we've all shifted to remote uh, is going to be a really, really good thing. I think short term, obviously COVID, uh, you know, is a terrible thing. A lot of people lost their lives. A lot of families have been hurt. People lost their jobs. Um, but I think that now people are realizing they can work remotely. And then what that does for us as a society is huge because the moment that you realize that you can work remotely, and companies realize that it's better for them as well because their overhead is lower. They can hire talent from anywhere. They can really find the best person for that job. You come to realize that this is the first time in human civilization where your economic growth has been separated from your geographic location, right? So my parents immigrated to the United States in the hopes of making more money to provide us with a better life. If this was, if, you know, we had to make the decision in 2021. My parents could get a remote job working for a U.S. company and stay in Bulgaria, right? And so this is what I mean by the domino effect. Like, what happens to immigration, right? Like, forget about work. What happens to the entire idea of immigration? What happens to the entire idea of, like, like borders and who gets to travel and, like, how companies hire and, like, all of these things? Like, there's, like, a tsunami effect of, like, things that are going to be changing over the next five years because we're now all going remote. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
I think that the the second order effects are are yet to be seen. And once we get through the the pandemic part of this, you know, the part that you're alluding to, and the fact that people are dying, which is horrible, uh, I think we'll begin to see sort of uh, the light. Think about we're seeing all these articles popping up of people quitting their jobs because they're like, well, I can get this other job now, right? Like, so we're already starting to see some, like people are, people are almost like seeing the light now, right? And they're realizing there's like, okay, well, this company's, you know, not treating me well. And they're forcing me to come back to the office, even though there's no need for me to do it. And I don't want to do that. And then there's this other company, you know, from this other city that is offering me the same money or even better uh, and letting me do whatever I want. So like, why wouldn't I go work for that? Right? Exactly. So I can live anywhere in the world. Yeah. Well, beyond the money though, um, like past that first step, let's say I have, you know, the income, the, the, the remote income, what are the big hurdles that people have to get over in order to get themselves into this digital nomad lifestyle where maybe I, you know, spend three months in Varna. I think Varna, Varna, a Bulgaria. big one is the community because there is a, you know, it's not all rate like roses and rainbows, no matter how much some like scammy people on the internet want to tell you, right? Like there's definitely difficult parts about this. And for me, one of the hardest ones is the fact that, you know, I have to leave my friends behind the United States and it kind of sucks that, you know, we all grew up watching these shows like friends or how I met your mother or, you know, insert in the blank, you know, kind of like friend comedy. And there's this idea of being able to go down to the bar or the park or whatever it is and see your friends that you see all the time. And that is not the case when you're a digital nomad because a, you're leaving the people behind that, you know, you're leaving the country that you're from the city that you're from and the community that you've built there, but you're also constantly changing communities, right? So yeah, maybe I'm here in Varna and I find some friends and we go out all the time, but then either they leave or I leave, right? And so that's a really big hurdle, but, and, and it's something that we struggled with quite a, quite a bit the first couple of years. But the interesting thing that happens is that when you spend enough time in this lifestyle and you meet enough people and you find new friends, um, you kind of start to create that community globally because it's really interesting. What happens is that you, you know, you find your little group of, you know, 10, 20 people that you're friends with that are also nomadic. And then you start traveling to meet them, right? So we're going to go spend six months in Puerto Vallarta after Varna because we have friends that are going to be there. We're going to have like a little group of friends there, right? And so we're starting to kind of travel with a community or like, you know, we'll go somewhere and we'll find a really cool place. And then like people are going to come meet us here. Uh, Before we hit record, I told you guys I'm getting married here in like two, three days. And we have a bunch of like nomad friends that are coming into town to celebrate with us. Some of them are already here. So it's just like you almost form this like global community of people that can move around just as easily as you can. And then you do get a little bit, a little bit of that effect. Um, so I think that that's one of the really hard things that people kind of need to be ready for, but also know that if you are a nomad for long enough and you, you know, you'll find your people and you'll have that community in the long term. And another, you know, related to this idea, one of the other good things I think about being a nomad quote unquote, um, and making friendships is that people realize intrinsically that we have a ticking clock on how quickly we can get to know each other. And so what you'll find is that when you meet other nomads, you tend to go deep very quickly. And I, and I say that in a positive light because you can very quickly make somebody, you can become like friends with somebody at a level that would take much higher to get to. If you know that like, oh, they live in, you know, New York and I live in New York too. And we have like eight months to, you know, build a relationship. Yeah. That's an interesting commentary on, on the friendship. And that last part makes a lot of sense and something I can definitely relate to when I've traveled, everyone is very aware of how long they're going to be where they are and they want to, you know, have full, proper, deep friendships. So they just kind of skip like (laughs) all the let's like stupid stuff and just get right into it. Uh, before we switch, ge- yeah, before we switch gears into asking about, you know, your, your business school and what you're currently exactly. up to, I have a couple questions I wanted to ask you about your podcast. 
uh, two really interesting guests from your list that I want to ask you, like what the interesting takeaways were from mm -hmm. interviewing them. And then maybe if you want to bring a third wild card in, you can, uh, th those are Phil Leibin from Evernote and Tynan. What were the interesting takeaways from those two interviews? Yeah. So Phil is the, uh, co-founder of Evernote, uh, which is like one of the most downloaded apps in the, you know, uh, I don't productivity space, I guess you'd call that category. Um, and then he also currently has, um, a video presentation, uh, software called, mm -hmm, which is, I think by far the coolest name for uh, an app ever. Uh, but yeah, so he's been, you know, around tech for a really long time around startups and, and, and the fees in the VC world. And I, when I had him on the podcast, I had this sort of like very high level question that I was expecting, you know, like it to be, you know, as a podcaster, you have like a few questions that are like, in, you know, in your tool belt and you know that you can, okay, I know this question, we're going to discuss it for like 10 minutes or so. And my question was, Phil, you know, what does remote work look like, you know, in 10 years or something like that? And he just said, it's just going to be called work. And there was like, no, like there was no further explanation. It was just the whole idea of like, you're not going to there's going to be no difference, right? We're not, this whole remote work as a category is just going to be gone because it's just going to be work because it's just going to become the the standard. Right. Um, and so I think that from somebody with his level of understanding of the market and of, you know, the industries and, and, and just the entire business scape, I think is a very good predictor of, what is to come. And, and I actually totally agree with him, even though I think it's technically a negative for me because I've built my brand on remote work. And I was like, Oh man, like that I shoot myself in the foot with this. Um, so that was a really interesting takeaway with him. And then with Tynan, I think instead of uh, uh, giving him an intro, a, a quick story yeah. that he told on my podcast was about how he found this website on the internet where he could buy a penguin. And he thought that was just the greatest idea ever. So he built a pool inside of his apartment for this penguin. Like he looked up like, what do penguins need to live, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so she redesigned his entire apartment for his new pet penguin that he was going to buy only to then find out that this was somebody's college, like web development project. And that it's actually completely and totally illegal and impossible to buy a penguin online, uh, or just not in online. So if there's like, you know, this is one of those things that is such a great story, uh, to illustrate who Tynan is, but my big takeaway from him actually, um, Tynan has a group of friends with which with whom he purchases property all over the world. So I think they have like uh, an apartment in Budapest, they have a house in Hawaii, and they even have an island in Canada. And essentially what he does is that he finds these properties that, that fit the bill for what he's looking for. He sends it out to an email list of his friends, and then they all pitch in the same amount to purchase this property. And the big takeaway from that was that I think, you know, getting into sort of the blockchain side of tech is going to be this decentralized version of some of these services that are very popular now for nomads like Airbnb. So what if, you know, the three of us are all nomads and we want to, you know, kind of like not rely on Airbnb anymore because Airbnb is getting more and more expensive. And what if, you know, the three of us and 10 of our friends pitch in to buy properties all over the world and kind of make our own closed loop Airbnb. And we end up having 10 apartments all over the world for, you know, a much smaller price tag per person than what it would be to own 10 places on your own. And so I think that that idea applied to the you know, the tech side of blockchain and what that allows us to do is smart contracts and et cetera, et cetera, uh, is a very, very interesting concept that I think we're going to start to see more of. Uh, I have a friend right now, example, uh, who's kind of like using this idea, not that I gave him the idea, but you know, it's a, it's a proof of, of the concept 
uh, where they're actually buying islands as an NFT, and every person who who buys into that NFT gets the location of that island, and the islands have like Wi-Fi, internet, et cetera, et cetera, and only people who are part of that NFT buy can go and live on that island. Um, and so I think that this is a really interesting idea and it's a big takeaway for me from that conversation uh, with Tynan because we are seeing this decentralized movement uh, more and more and then, you know, take the idea of, you know, having your own closed loop Airbnb and then think about uh, a whole bunch of other services or industries that, that can be applied to because, you know, the three of us and 10 of our best friends decide to team up together and, and do it, build it for ourselves. Yeah, blockchain real estate is something that I've been interested in pretty, um, you know, intensely for for months now. I think, uh, I think it's the future, obviously, um, and I think that real estate lending or, or crypto lending on those um, NFTs is is somewhere where I would like to innovate in the future for sure. I think. Um, that you know the basis of the modern or i guess traditional finance system is is mortgages and in real estate um and i think that that'll be true for the new financial system that we're building on uh blockchain technology and so yeah for sure but and i think that what you're talking about is just an application of that it's like you know it, it's Tynan's um, friend. They, they actually bought one in japan as well and you know he's written a lot about that process and what it's like and um, and if anybody's interested, definitely go check it out at Tynan.com. I'm actually writing a white paper about it as well. It's kind of like clanning in real life, right? So I don't know if you guys ever played video games, but you end up having a clan, right? In order to uh, take on a large quest or, or achieve a challenge that's more difficult that you can't do on your own. And, you know, you form your little clan of people. You don't even necessarily need to know who they are in real life. You know, you can have some sort of anonymity around that. But having this clan allows you to solve certain problems that you can't solve on your own. So think about insurance. Think about hosting. You know, there's a bunch of these problems that you can't necessarily fix yourself. Uh, you know, social safety nets is another really, really big one that we know is going to be a problem in the future and that we're trying to solve at the moment. And so these are problems that you can't necessarily fix yourself, but you can with a group. And the solution for that has been a geographic group, right? Like we're U.S. citizens and we solve that problem mm. for us as a community together. But what happens when, you know, that citizenship kind of um, dissolves a little bit in terms of importance? And, you know, I have more in common with somebody in, uh, you know, Egypt than I do with other U.S. citizens. One project I encourage you and anyone interested in this to check out is called the Bowtie Jungle, if you've heard of them. They're like a cohort and of people super into Ethereum that are all anonymous, right? It's called Bowtie Jungle, so every character is like a bowtie ape, mm -hmm. bowtie monkey, bowtie butterfly, and I, like he like makes some artwork about that. And it's a completely anonymous cohort of people trying to buy an island together in 2035 called Degen Island, and like their whole thing is they teach you like how to create your own remote business, how to like invest in crypto so that you can like gain entry to DGen Island in 2035. So like what you're talking about is for people who like might think you're not Kyle and I, but people who are listening to this, that aren't as deep in crypto, aren't as deep in remote work, like might think you're like really out there, but they're like true people, like really acting on this, like raising substantial sums of capital, like organizing mass effort of like, like meaningful numbers of people that like could actually start pulling things like this off. Yeah. And I mean, shout out, uh, I had never heard of that. So, so thanks for, uh, I'm definitely going to Google it the moment that we get done with this interview, but, um, uh, another shout out to safety wing, which is one of the largest, um, remote health insurance providers. And they literally have a project called the first country in the internet, which is called Plumia. And this is like the thing that they're trying to solve and they're putting money into. Um, so these projects are starting up and, and I agree that this sounds crazy. Like I get it. It's also kind of like weird when you bring it up in, you know, with your real world friends because like they might not be so deep into this. They think you're kind of a nut job. Yeah. But people thought it was crazy that one day we're going to, you know, buy things on the internet. You know, in 1995, people thought that the internet was a fluke. So these yep. things in the beginning always sound a little bit crazy, but watch the data. 
right? This is where crazy ideas stop being crazy and it's just the beginning of a trend, right? Just the beginning of a, of a new version of doing things, right? The data is there. And so, um, yeah, it sounds a little kooky, but follow the information, yeah. follow the data so, and see what that tells you. And what does, you know, yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna human bring behavior that up. So, also point towards? Yeah, two things. So one on exactly what you're saying about kind of the, the Gartner hype cycle and the social narratives that kind of mirror the various stages of like the, the, the adoption Ooh, curve and about the, things uh, like that of new technologies is just look up like the, uh, wrong takes about the internet from the from 2000s, newsletter. from the 1990s, like see all the major headlines on the newspaper and like, you know, major people who are still, I'm going to use the biggest air quotes ever, major the best. people who are still quote unquote credible today, <laughs> like saying completely wrong things about the internet, right? I forget. I think it's like Paul Krugman in like the year 2000 and Paul Krugman like writes every economics textbook that like kids use in high school, whole separate debate. But he's like, the internet's going to not last another year. And like, he's still reputable. But point is all the things we're saying today, just like see what people are saying about something that came true and be like, Oh, this is, <laughs> this is how it works. Uh, but just even a current example, uh, have you heard of Axie infinity? Nico? Yeah. People play uh, and are tell me more about it. earning, you know, 10 to $15 per hour, literally playing the game. Uh, because the game's built on Ethereum, and to play the game, you have to buy characters, and those characters, you know, cost real money. Well, they cost Ethereum, which, you know, you need fiat currency to acquire, and the only way to join the game is to buy a character, but the game doesn't issue the characters. The players issue the characters by breeding their characters. And so this is like a fully functioning internet economy. Like it's just a virtual world where people are earning real world mm. income because you can trade your Ethereum for any local fiat currency, buy your groceries, like pay your rent. Uh, you know, people in the Philippines that were earning on average like $5 a day are now earning like $40 a day playing this game. And there's like, you know, 600,000 people. Like there are fully functioning nations in this world that have their own economies, that have like their own salaries, that have their own way goods and services and value are transferred that are smaller than this ecosystem. And this is like a purely internet, purely remote, purely, let's call it quote unquote made up thing. That is a, you know, completely efficient economy made on a self-sovereign currency that just like came up without permission from any country. So like internet countries, you know, it's happening. Internet economies. For some color, the revenue of Axie Infinity was $100,000 in January of 2021. Yeah. And, and the most recent closed month was $297 Well, million. and like back in 2017, so I, think, to I met a guy. Million. He played a video game for a living because what he did was he was a really high level in this video game. And, you know, not all other players could make the items that he could. Like, he, they couldn't smith the items that he could as his character. And he would literally sell those items on eBay for, like, real cash. And people would buy them on eBay, pay him in real cash. And then he would deliver the product in the video game to those characters. Yeah. And this was 2017 off of some, like, super – this sounds kind of shady, right? And he was making a living. He was living here in Bulgaria, and I think he was saying he was making three, four thousand euro a month off of this business. So you know now these are becoming more legitimate. And here's the thing: is that we may be wrong about the details, the underlying trend, right? Like the details won't always be correct, but watch the the general direction, right? So maybe the exactly. So maybe this game that you're talking about doesn't work out, but it's another one. Right. Or it's that Zed project, I think is what's called with those horses, which I remember when I looked at it and the horses were like four grand to buy. And I was like, oh, this is way too expensive at the moment. And now they're like millions of dollars. Right. But let's let's transition now because we did have a lot of things we want to talk about. Uh, I love the ideation, but I do want to ask you about your online school because that's your current remote project. Yeah. What's that called? What What are you teaching people? What's like the, the quick pitch? And then we'll ask the follow up questions that are most relevant. So the quick pitch is, um, it's called Parable. And what I noticed was that there's, you know, all of these online courses right now about how to build a business. And it's everything from like, you know, how to use Upwork to how to hire someone to, uh, you know, how to run Facebook ads, everything. There's a course for it now. Yet people aren't necessarily putting those things into action because there's a difference between knowing what to do and knowing how to deploy that knowledge, right? And what I did was I looked at sort of old academic 
you know, systems like the college system and looked at what are they doing right? Like, what are they doing that allows people to walk out and become really, you know, awesome entrepreneurs. And one of the things that I noticed that was missing from like our, you know, uh, ecosystem, so to say, are case studies, because when you go to business school, a huge part of the business school process is actually studying case studies of real businesses to understand what are the problems that those businesses faced and how were they solved and how did those businesses tick so that when you get out there and you go out there and build a business or, you know, work in your own business and you come up to a problem, you've seen it before you know how to do this because you've worked it through in a case study. And this didn't exist for online businesses because in some ways like we're still the wild, wild west, right? Like to the three of us, online business makes total sense. It's the way that we go every single time. But for a majority of the population, you know, it's shocking to still think that's a majority of the population. It's still the wild, wild west, right? And so what we started doing was we started creating these case studies, interviewing businesses that are doing between a hundred thousand and $10 million a year and all different types, right? Freelancers, uh, SAS, uh, you know, productized services, all of those different things and looking at what makes those businesses tick. And we publish it inside of a, a membership for people who want to build a business. They're entrepreneurs. Maybe they're entrepreneurs who are, you know, don't yet feel comfortable to get started, but they're really ready to get going, uh, so that people can understand how these businesses tick, uh, what makes them work. Uh, and so that when they are building their own business, when they're running their own business and they face a problem, they can go look at other businesses who face a similar problem and see how they fix them. So yeah, it's, it's a reoccurring membership that happens every quarter. Um, and that people pay for it to get access to a closed community that also has a library of all of those case studies. The case studies come in both a video interview format. And then also every case study comes with sort of like documentation of infographics. So you can, you know, quickly scroll through revenue numbers, uh, you know, PNLs, uh, when people hired stuff, you know, statistics, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, uh, tech stacks, all those things. Uh, we also do master classes. So we bring on an expert every single month to, to kind of go deep on a certain subject. And then one of the new things that, um, people kind of started requesting and we we're like, Oh man, like, I can't believe that we didn't think about this in the beginning is actually templates. So what can we look at these case studies and essentially what sort of tool can we identify that was high leverage in that business case study and create templates out of it so that people who are members can literally say, okay, this is my business model. This case study is my business model. An example of that is, uh, we had somebody on who runs a, a like an agency type model for, uh, he, he runs Facebook ads specifically for people who, who run coaching businesses online. And the way that he was getting clients online was that quarterly, he would send out kind of like an email survey type thing in which he asks them a few questions or kind of presents the information of like, here's what we've achieved in the last quarter, right? Working with you. And the last three, four questions of that email kind of start to form a, Hey, here's all the benefits that we've done for you and sort of spells it out for them. And then towards the end of it, essentially pitches them for like, if there's anybody else that you know, that, you know, could use the same growth can, you know, would like to have the same achievements, you know, please connect us and I'll give you, you know, some sort of affiliate or, or a bonus for, you know, bringing on the new client for us. And that is how, you know, he was able to build, uh, that agency into a six figure plus company in under a year. Right. And so this is the sort of thing where we were able to get at, like literally the email that he sends to us and, or that he sends out the to his clients baseball. and we just made it into a template it. that now our members can literally copy and paste. Uh, you have a concept you teach called the business, business ladder into their business. What is, what is that? So I believe that business is simple, but it's not easy, right? All that business is, is finding a problem and coming up with a solution for it at scale, right? There is no business if there's no problem. And I think now that there's so much information out there, we overcomplicate this, right? 
And so what I teach people is, and you know, this is something that we talk about, um, cause I, I, I work with coaching clients and, you know, we talk about on the podcast and YouTube channel and et cetera, et cetera, is that start first of all with who you want to work with and then work to identify their problem. Right? So a lot of people focus on like, here's what my business does, right? We make cups. Okay. Well, who do you make cups for? Right? Because different people are going to want different things out of a cup. You know, and so what I kind of suggest is first find your who, not what you do. Okay. And when you find that who, the really important thing here is that what you do for those people can change and shift over time. But as long as who you do it for stays the same, you're never starting from zero, right? Because you've already established trust with those people. And so what I suggest is, and this is kind of the business ladder is first go through a discovery period, right? That's step number one, go out there, try a few different quote unquote who's see who you like working with, um, you know, who, uh, what type of client best fits your set of skills. And once you find that person begin to freelance for them. Because by working for them and actually getting paid to solve problems for them, you're going to understand their problems better, right? The same way that you learn the best when you try to teach something. I don't know if you've ever had that experience where, you know, you can read all the books in the world, but you never quite learn it as well when you try to like teach someone that thing. And when you work with someone and try to solve their problems, you're going to understand them a lot better, right? And when you work with them, the other thing that you'll start to notice is patterns, right? And patterns are really important because patterns are related to scale. So when you're freelancing with a, you know, uh, a, a, a set of clients freelancing is step number two, step one is discovery, test a few different things. Step number two in the ladder is freelance, right? When you begin to notice patterns with those clients, Patterns are things that you can productize around. So step three is a productized service. You essentially spot a pattern. You develop a product out of your services that you then offer to your clients, bring on someone to help you, right? Hire somebody and outsource that work to them. So that's step number three. And step number three is a very, very comfortable place to be, right? I think freelancing is great and it's a really good way to get cash flow, but I... I'm a little hesitant to suggest that people stay entirely at freelancing because you get sick, something happens, cash flow ends, right? Um, and so I think the third step up, getting to a productized service where you've identified a few, you know, patterns, you've created some services for those, and you kind of have a little bit more of an automated stream of income because you've brought people in to help you. Uh, is a really comfortable place to be. You can stay there and you can build a you know multi-million dollar business right there, right? There's plenty of examples uh, on the internet and examples that will be uh, our case studies in the future that do this sort of thing. But then beyond that, because a productized service can bring in a lot more cash flow, you can then build a product, whether that's a physical product or a software, to solve that same problem or another problem that you've spotted with the same with that same client. And so you can kind of see how they build on top of each other. And, you know, a lot of people try to go straight for, you know, a SaaS type of business because, you know, it's so sexy and it seems so great. And, you know, the, the, you know, the revenue numbers can be quite significant, but there's a real, you know, we all hear about the rates of success with, you know, new businesses and startups. If you're making money from day one, like doing X services, right? Like if you have a business, you can always fall back on your freelancing and your less automated work to continue to pay the bills for your business while, you know, your software is getting the bugs kinked out and you're getting the sales and like that recurring revenue is kicking in versus if you start with nothing except let's say a million dollars of runway, like that million dollars is only ticking down and you only have so much time to get the revenue numbers up versus if you have kind of a slow but steady cash cow on the side, you can screw around and make a lot more mistakes a whole lot longer. Kyle, did you have something to add there? I did. Um, and then another podcast that we did, which I think is sort of similar to what you're saying, uh, is a guy that I actually ended up working for, David Oakley. He made this analogy about trying on a lot of different boots early in his career and how he, um, you know, he did accounting for a little bit, he did this for a little bit, he did that for a little bit. 
And then when he found the niche that he excelled in, he was able to run a lot farther because the boots really fit. And what you're talking about, I think, is like finding those boots where where they fit and where you can run with it and find that you know highest point of leverage. Where if you just start um, at starting a business, you might start something that you're not necessarily fit to do. I think that there's a higher tendency to wait around to get the right idea. And that is a really big trap because, and you guys know this from like, you know, interviewing tons of entrepreneurs is usually the first idea isn't the one that, you know, the first version isn't the one that works. You kind of need to go through some crap to get to the version that really clicks, right? And if you're constantly sitting around and thinking, okay, what is my perfect product I service? What is my perfect SaaS? What is my startup? Blah, 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 blah you put yourself in this sort of trap of just standing around and watching instead of doing. So what I suggest people is don't worry about getting the right business idea. Business ideas are one in, you know, a plenty, right? You talk to any successful entrepreneur, they have a, a Google doc with 150, you know, future business mm -hmm. ideas. Start where you're at and kind of wade through the crap because the third, fourth version of what you build is going to be the part that works, you know, perfect example, parable in the beginning, the idea was a newsletter. That's all that it was going to be. But from starting from that idea and sort of getting, you know, getting customers, first of all, uh, people who are paying and getting to look at it and saying like, actually, Michael, this part sucks. You need to rethink this. The reason we started this podcast was realizing we didn't love any of our ideas and this podcast, you know, then we could have debated forever. You know, what should we theme the podcast around? What niche should we pick? How do we title it? And we were like, we could go on with this for weeks and never be satisfied, or we could just call it Lewis and Kyle and just do it. And if some great idea comes up, we'll just rebrand and run with it. Otherwise we're going to, you know, still have a hundred interviews done, a hundred relationships, whatever you call it, and be much further along in every respect than, you know, never getting past the starting line. And that's, you know, funny enough, one of the names I've always thrown around is just like the bias towards action podcast, which is a terrible name, but very much like the, one of the ethos is in like meta lessons we hope to convey with the show is just like, you know, a bias towards action beats, a bias towards excessive planning and overthinking. So I'm really glad that that is kind of a top of mind mental model that you're instilling in, you know, your teaching and then also in your practice and in your business. You know, I, I totally agree with that because you will be judged for not doing anything, but really successful people you'll find won't judge you for trying and failing, right? Everyone will ask you, what have you done? What have you tried? You know, and they don't necessarily care. I mean, yeah, it's great if those were a success, but they more want to see you take action on it, right? Swing the bat. Don't just stand there and look at the pitch, right? And if you're just this guy who comes in and says that, oh, you know, I had this idea and that idea and I thought about this and I thought about that, that is nowhere as valuable as you saying, Here's what I built, it crashed. Here's this other thing that I did, it didn't work. Here's, you know, because like you learn, you show that you've taken action and every single one of those things are a new lesson, uh, something new that you learned, that you tried, that you tested, and that's interesting. And you know, this is going to like hiring, but this is who people wanna hire, right? I know that, you know, we speak to entrepreneurs and stuff like that, but like n nobody wants to hire this person who just sits on the sidelines and twiddles his thumbs and collects a paycheck. People wanna see, somebody who tries things, you know, moves forward, you know, tests things. And so, yeah, I mean, like, I think if you're listening right now and you're kind of like, you know, coming up with ideas and you kind of notice this trend, there's a lot of like, you need to kind of stop yourself and think, is this a pattern that I display? And if it is break it immediately, right? Like one of the things I, I mentioned in passing was I dropped out of college. The reason why I dropped out of college is because I was in a really cushy degree and I saw the pattern in front of me. I saw where everybody that was graduating was going. It was this life that was like a nine to five solid, you know, uh, income, solid salary, but like it was putting me in a life that I didn't want to be in. And what I said was because, you know, I am a relatively lazy person. Like I know that about my personality. I can kind of like, if it's cushy, I can kind of stay in it for a little while. And I was like, I cannot let this pattern happen. I do want to switch to bonus round, kind of some last rapid fire questions. You told us the last time we spoke that you converted your dad into a digital nomad. How did that happen? What's that? What's that? What's that about? So my dad is a, to say personal trainer would be kind of like, uh, 
you know, disservice to him. He essentially works with very high level uh, entrepreneurs and investors and helps them be the best that they can be so they can do what they do as best as they can, right? And, you know, he's been doing this thing and seeing these people in person and showing them, you know, not just physical exercises, but kind of runs them through a whole bunch of different things just to make them the best version, the best performing version they can be both physically and mentally. And I was like, dad, there's like really nothing about this that, you know, stops you from doing it remotely. And he was always kind of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I know that like theoretically you're, you're right about that, but this is the way that I'm doing it. And, you know, cause it was easy. It was, um, the play was in, was in place and then COVID hit and he couldn't go in and see his clients in person anymore. So they did it on zoom. And then when COVID kind of slowed down a little bit, he was like, well, why would I go back and, you know, you know, in person with them, I'm going to keep doing this remotely. And that actually helped explode his business because then he found a niche of very successful Bulgarian entrepreneurs abroad that he can now work with. Right? So now it wasn't just these like very successful entrepreneurs and investors in the Cincinnati area. It was these very successful people from like all over the world. And what's really fun about that, because you know, the business part of it is great, you know, but it's the, the quality of life that is really important because one of the really important things for me being remote is the fact that my grandma just celebrated her 90th birthday and I barely saw her from age 10 to age 21, maybe a week or two, you know, every year over the last five years, since I've been a digital nomad, I've gotten to spend multiple months in the same city that she lives in. And that has been a massive, massive positive in my life because this is somebody who raised me, right? And that has been very important to me in this whole location independent story. And my dad, her son, has been in Bulgaria for over a month now, which he's never been able to do before because he's now also a digital nomad getting to spend, you know, my, you know, his mother's 90th birthday with her. Um, and so yes, the money's great. Yes. Being able to do all these things that we talked about is really, really great, but remote work and being a digital nomad, being location dependent allows you to work, to live it. I'm sorry. It allows you to like work, to live, not necessarily live to work. Right. Because a lot of people who are driving to the office every day, their life kind of revolves around their work. Uh, and this allows you to kind of disconnect that. And that wraps up this conversation with Mitko. I thought it was a really cool conversation. I've got three quick takeaways. The first of which is that for the first time in human history, home and work do not have to be connected. And I don't think that people have fully uh, internalized this fact. Like never before in history have these two things been disconnected. And I am looking forward to seeing how our society responds to such a large like change in the fundamental fabric of like work and what it means to be human and in a place. Uh, the second is that the future of remote work is just going to be called work because that's what everybody's going to be doing. Um, you know, obviously there are specific industries that will never be remote and will be more hybrid, but like the obvious trend is that more and more and more and more companies will become remote, will start remote, and will be globally distributed. And I think that that's really cool. Uh, and the third thing is about Mitko's story, which is just like, he learned by doing. He didn't learn by by thinking about it. He learned by messing up 100,000 times. I mean, you know, he was looking for a mentor, so he went and find, found one who had a business and started running his companies. And like, that's just the way that he's done everything up until now. Um, and I super respect that. And so those are my three takeaways, Lewis. Take it away. Taking it away. The first thing I'm taking away is your first takeaway. What about farmers, Kyle? They kind of worked from home. I said specific, there are specific industries. Okay. Well, okay. Anyway, uh, takeaways from me, but I do agree that it's become an option in virtually all industries, or at least it rounds up to every, every option, except maybe truck drivers. Mm -hmm. Anyway, not yet though, but maybe one day, you know, you can drive a remote vehicle. That's, that's a thing people do. It's like drones, but cars. Okay. Three different takeaways from Kyle's first one is 
on the other side of this piece of paper. I have to flip it over. Okay. First one is spending a lot of time on customer discovery. This is kind of a quote I've heard in various firms forms from various entrepreneurs, you know, first time entrepreneurs focus on the product and then second time entrepreneurs focus on either the customer or the distribution or some other element that's not the product or they focus on the community beforehand. Uh, either way, Miko's opinion, which is very similar to all those other people is that when you know who you're going to serve or the community you're going to serve or the problem that you're going to address before you create the product, you're a lot more successful because you've validated demand. Uh, that's just a piece of advice that gets beaten into our head on this podcast. Uh, so yeah, we're beating into your head as well because you're listening. Second takeaway is about untested assumptions. The story about Miko's dad, I thought was very powerful how his dad thought there's no way I could ever run my business remote. Like you do. I'm a personal trainer that would never work. And then when he was finally forced into a different situation where he had to try doing it remote, it actually took off and started succeeding better because since he was doing remote, he could hire the people who could afford him at the best rates. And then, unlocked a new industry of native Bulgarian speakers, uh, which were willing to pay a much higher rate because his dad speaks their language. And he's like the only personal trainer that does that point is these untested assumptions for however many years kept his dad from growing the business, uh, and a change in circumstance that forced him to change his assumptions led to things being better. So, you know, we were talking to the land geek a few episodes ago, uh, about the beginner's mind, right? Starting every day thinking that I actually know nothing. And I think that's really humbling and can help you breakthrough previous imagined boundaries. Third takeaway, another very common takeaway on this podcast is simple, not easy. Don't overcomplicate things. Again, Kyle's third takeaway was he didn't spend all day thinking about how do I become a remote nomad entrepreneur? Just kind of stepped into the fire and did it simple, not easy. You know, finding a mentor, we all say that, but it's like, find someone whose stuff is interesting to you, offer them to help out in some way, let the rest take care of itself. Uh, a lot of this advice in every entrepreneurship podcast, which is kind of why the genre gets hated on sometimes is sometimes kind of obvious. We do pick up a lot of like subtle nuance and like insider baseball stuff. When he talks about the, you know, the Eurozone visa and those details that were kind of unknown to us beforehand. Uh, and that's why the medium is still useful, of course, but the broad principles are keep it simple and just do it. That's it for this episode. Miko was awesome. I hope you found it as awesome as we did. We've got 80 other awesome episodes. I would appreciate if you listen to those as well, if you can't wait for us for another week or so. Otherwise, if you want to show your support, leave a rating or review on Apple iTunes and say, Hey, on Twitter, we're at the Lewis and Kyle show Google likes us. You can find us by searching for our names. If you want to say hi and chat, see you in a week or so with the next episode. Have a good one. Bye-bye.